Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kevin Kiefer. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. We are actually in the second week of a sermon series that we're doing, uh, and it's a character study. We're, we're talking about living a, an extraordinary life, a life that is less ordinary. And so we're looking at different characters in the Bible, and um, we're just kind of studying them to see what God did in their life and through their life as a as a example for us. And so uh, over the next two weeks, I'm kind of excited because I'm going to tackle the uh, two kind of famously the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And those two guys are Elijah uh, and Elisha. And so today we're going to talk about Elijah. And I'm calling Elijah a kingdom crime fighter. Elijah the kingdom crime fighter. And, uh, and we're going to look at probably one of the most sensational moments in the entire scope of the history of the Bible. I mean, I could make an argument for that. Some of you might disagree and say something else was, was more amazing. But this, there, we're going to look at the showdown between Elijah uh, as the prophet of God and 450 prophets of a pagan god uh, called Baal. And we're, we're going to kind of have our lids blown off a little bit here. But so Elijah, just a little bit about him. He was, uh, he's kind of considered to be Israel's most famous prophet. He's also famous because he appeared with Moses and Jesus at the Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And he lived, Elijah and Elisha lived somewhere in the 8th century BC or so. And here's here's why I I was excited to talk about Elijah. And that is that um, I think that he is going to show us how to live a more extraordinary life because he lived a life of extraordinary faith in God. And because of his his faith in God, he actually got to do... uh, got to see God do some of the most incredible things that were ever recorded in history. And if you, if you're a person that has felt like maybe like your relationship with God has gotten a little bit sleepy, or you're not really sure that God is real or that he's got incredible power. Um, today, we're going to kind of dive into a person's life and we're going to sort of, I think God's going to help us to regain some of that, that sense of, of the extraordinariness of God and the power of God that we can experience. And so uh, since we're d- talking about prophets, for the next two weeks, I wanted to begin by giving us just a little bit of a tutorial about these Old Testament prophets. I want us to be all on the same page. And so, uh, and so who were these prophets, right? Who were these guys? Well, the prophets in the Old Testament, these were just Israelites who at some point in their life, they had this profound encounter with God, right? And, and when they encountered God in that moment, God commissioned, uh, these men to really represent him uh, to the nation of Israel and actually to the southern nation, the kingdom of Judah, right? And so um, these guys were going to be representatives of God to God's nation, the nation of Israel. And what they cared most about the prophets is they cared about the partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. And so um, you might know that uh, after God rescued Israel from the clutches of their enslaved 
enslavement in Egypt that he invited Israel uh, and he commissioned them actually to be his own nation, to be a nation that represented him and represented his character to the whole world. And so they were going to represent the, the character of God, the generosity of God, the, the, uh, the justice of God to the, the, the whole world, but specifically to those pagan nations that surrounded them. And so Israel was going to be this great light in the midst of this really, really great darkness, right? And so God said, Israel, um, I will be your God and you will be my people and you will represent me to the world, right? Um, and so the, they began this partnership and as a part of the partnership and the partnership is really what the Bible calls, it calls it covenant. It was a type of relationship and God said that you will be set apart for me and for my purposes and I want you to worship me alone and honor me alone and manifest my character and God said that he would give himself to them to be that blessing to the world. But the problem is, and the sad part about this is that the leaders of Israel all throughout their history with minor blips in the course of history throughout almost all of history the kings and the priests the leaders of Israel would lead their own country astray and they would cease to be the people that God wanted them to be they would not become that people that would manifest God's glory in the nations that were around them as a matter of fact very often in in Israel's history and 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 in Judah's history rather than glorifying and worshiping God alone, they would uh, kind of join up with the pagan nations around them and they would adopt their practices. They would marry into those nations and they would actually worship their idols and their gods. And the sad thing about it is that the idol worship, the worship of these pagan countries or nations around Israel was so horrible, so evil, you know, up to and including uh, child sacrifice. As a matter of fact, as we talk about Baal and Asherah today, those are two gods, uh, part of worship to these gods was not, not just like horrible practices, sexual practices, but also child sacrifice. And so God wanted to bring his justice and bring his truth to the area. But it seems like every other king or most of the kings in Israel and in Judah let God down and let the, the, the uh, you know, let everyone else down by not manifesting God's, God's glory there. And this is where the prophets came in. So for every king of Israel and for every king of Judah, there was a prophet who was representing God and speaking to them on his behalf. And these, these prophets, they were like watchdogs. That's really what they were. They were like watchdogs. And their role was to remind Israel of their covenant relationship with God. That's what they were doing. They were there to talk to the kings and talk to the priests and say, this is who you are. This is what God created you to do. And so they were kind of watchdogs is probably the best way to put it. And they reminded Israel, and this is, this is, I just want you guys to understand this. They reminded Israel of their calling in three different ways. Okay, so they really were constantly doing three different things. And you'll see it every time you read anything in the Old Testament about the kings of Israel and the prophets of Israel, you'll hear the prophets doing one of these three things. And the first thing is, is that they would regularly accuse the kings 
of violating the terms of the covenant, right? And specifically, they would challenge the kings because they were, um, they had given into idolatry. They were worshiping other gods, foreign gods, meaning that they were, uh, they were committing an injustice. They were, uh, being unkind to the poor. They weren't caring for the poor and they were just joining in the, you know, sort of sacrifice to idols. And so here's what, here's what Micah chapter six, verse eight says. And this is, this is a really great little synopsis. Micah was a minor prophet and he said this, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And this was the mission statement of the prophets to fight for their nation so that they would be a people after God's own heart, so that they would be a nation who would do justice and mercy towards people and that they would walk humbly before God. In other words, that they would worship God alone. And so that was the first thing that the prophets did. The second thing that the prophets did is they called Israel to turn around, to turn back, or to repent, to return to God, and to obey God again. So they called them out on their injustice, they called them out on their idolatry, then they called them to return to the Lord, and then the third thing that the prophets did is they announced the consequences of uh, Israel's breaking the covenant. They said, if you do not repent, this is what the Lord will do. And they talked about how a day of judgment would come by one way or another, something that the Lord would do to punish and to actually restore worship back to God in the nations around them. So this was the role of the prophets, right? That's kind of the abridged version. And so today we're going to look at uh, Elijah the prophet, and we're going to lock into the story of this confrontation that he had uh, with the, the idols of Canaan, the area that they were living in, and the showdown between God and uh, and the gods of Canaan. And they were the, the, there were two gods, Baal and Asherah. And I'll I'll talk to you guys about those uh, those guys in a, in a little bit. But um, before I read this, we're going to read this really, really long story. We're going to read all of it together so that we have the context for it. Uh, but there's two characters that you're going to want to know about. One is King Ahab and the other one is Queen Jezebel, right? Have you guys heard of Ahab and Jezebel? They are famously horrible people. They're sort of the most evil. They were the most evil king and queen in all of Israel's history, which is actually saying a lot because there was a ton of terrible people that led Israel, but these two were the absolute worst. They utterly endeavored to utterly destroy worship of God all throughout Israel, and they basically killed all of God's people. They killed all of the prophets and, and the, the priests who would worship God, right? And so God called Elijah to set up this confrontation to, to really wipe the slate clean and to, and to restore worship to God. And so this is Elijah. Did I, have I been saying Elisha? Okay, good, good. All right, so this is Elijah, and we're on Mount Carmel, right? So here it is. We're gonna we're gonna read this whole bit. So be patient as we work through this together. First Kings chapter eighteen. This is crazy stuff here. So it says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him. And this is added that Elijah wanted to meet with him. He told Ahab, King Ahab, that Elijah wanted to meet with him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah. He said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? King Ahab, the king of Israel, said to Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Are you getting a sense of the type of relationship that the prophets had with the kings? 
right? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah said, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Baal, was uh, a Canaanite god, and it was either one specific god, or it was sort of a generic term for a handful of gods. Uh, and Asherah was a powerful goddess in that same area. She was kind of a fertility thing, uh, fertility goddess, and she was actually represented. You'll hear in the in the Old Testament about Asherah poles because oftentimes these these pagan idols were represented by some sort of a physical object, and Asherah was often represented by either a living tree or a pole that was sort of like consecrated created for her. Okay. So those were these two gods that we're talking about. Uh, and of course, like I said, worship of these, these little G gods was horrible, uh, and just depraved. And so we're on to verse 20 here. And so it says this. So King Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Did he get an amen? Well, we get an amen. He got nothing. It says, but the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us and let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and will put uh, it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. And call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull given to them and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt, to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's asleep. He's sleeping and must be awakened. And so they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired. This is symbolic and this is important. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, you, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of sea. That was about 18 inches uh, deep of a trench. And it says he arranged the wood. He cut the bull into pieces and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. It's an amazing story. So let's talk about what happened. You have probably heard it said, it's kind of cliche, but it might be true that faith is spelled what? Not F-A, <laughs> no, R-I-S-K, right? Faith is spelled risk, right? And this is a story of Elijah really stepping out into unbelievable, great faith, right? He opened by challenging the most evil king Israel ever had. And when he did that, he put his life at great at, at risk, right? For sure. The next thing he did is he gathered every prophet of Baal. That would be 450 prophets to his one lowly self, then he stacked up the odds against himself so thoroughly by drenching his own sacrifice in water that if he were to prevail, it could only be God, right? He set the circumstances up so that God would receive all of the glory. And if God didn't show up, and this is really what I want to get to, if God didn't show up, it would be a catastrophic defeat, a catastrophic defeat, not just the loss of Elijah's dignity, not just the loss of his reputation, but the absolute literal loss of his life. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing that I want us to really think about you guys. And it's this Elijah put God to the test. Elijah put God to the test. He put God into a situation where if God didn't show up, everyone would know it immediately, right? He did that, didn't he? But when Jesus uh, was, was being tempted by the devil, do you remember in Luke chapter 4 where the devil was tempting Jesus? And the devil said, hey, go up to the top of the temple and throw yourself down because if you do that, the angels will catch you. And what did Jesus say? He said, don't tempt, don't put the Lord God to the test. Don't put the Lord God to the test. But here's what I want to say to us, you guys. If we think about it, it's one thing for us to do something cavalier, to do something stupid or ungodly, just to see if God will bail us out. That's one thing. But it's something altogether different to step out in obedience to God, to honor God. It's a different thing to step out in obedience, to bring his kingdom into a situation, even if it puts our comfort or our reputation or even God's reputation at risk. Because somewhere along the line, church, I believe that we have started to believe as a church that God would never call us to do something that risky, that he would never call us to do something that was very uncomfortable to us, that he would never call us to do something where it looked like God didn't deliver in the moment, that he wouldn't do that. But what a lost church. What a loss there, because if we never step out in faith, if we never give God the opportunity to show up in the natural, supernaturally, um, 
then we will live in a world that never knows that God is a supernatural God. If we never give God the opportunity to break in in a way that could only be God in this life, then the world will never know that God is powerful, that he is supernatural, nor will we. We will forget that. Because so many of us in the church have gone so long without needing a supernatural God that we've fallen asleep and we've begun to forget how powerful and how glorious God really is. And so my question today is, is where are the Christians that will put God to the test? Where are the Christians that will tap into the power of God again? Now, um, downstairs in our basement, we have a sump pump. Uh, anybody else have a sump pump in your basement? Okay, good. Just getting, getting some buy-in here. Good, all you sump pumpers, right? So we have a sump pump in our basement, and uh, it is hardwired into the electric of our house. And what that means is that if a storm comes, that thing just kicks on, and it very, very powerfully pumps the water away from the house so that our house doesn't flood. But we also have a battery backup to our sump pump. And that means that if we ever lose power to the house, there's this little battery down there and that thing kicks on and it will pump water away from the house for a little while until we can get the the power restored to our house, right? And so one of those power sources, it generates great power and it just keeps on going and going. And the other power source generates much less power and it has a very, very limited life to it. But the pump can use either one of those things, right? The pump can use either one. And what I want to suggest to you guys is that we are like that sump pump and that we have two power sources in our lives as well. We have this little battery pack that isn't very powerful, doesn't last very long, and that's our own strength. That is our own effort. That is our intellect. But we also have another power source that is like this full voltage electric current that is so powerful that it's actually dangerous. And that that thing can just keep running and running and running. And that, of course, is God. And we have been wired with both. Both are ready to go. When we came to faith, for any one of us that have put our trust in Jesus, we have access to both of those power sources. But so many of us Christians have been using the batteries as our main power source because somewhere along the lines, we just decided that, that God is just too powerful. He's too risky to offer to the world. And so we've chosen to live our lives with these little AA batteries day in and day out. And that's what we offer the world. And we tell them that God is real. And we tell them that he's a God of power, but we never put that God of power on display. And so our message, I fear, I don't know. I wonder if it rings a little hollow to the world. We tell, we tell of infinite power of a high voltage God, big G, but we show a baby battery pack, a little G God in our lives. Does that resonate with anybody at all? We Christians, we say that we live by faith, but if we are living in a way that never requires faith, then we're actually not walking in the way that God called us to. We're not living by faith. And I just want to ask, what if we began to put ourselves in situations where God had to show up? And if he didn't, it would be obvious to everyone. What if we began to live in a way where if God didn't show up, it would be obvious. Would God come up? Would he rise up to defend his name? Would he rise up to defend his honor? Would he do the things that he, that he promised that he would do if we would step up and say, God, only you can do this. Use me to bring you glory. Might God 
be glorified because I want to tell you guys that God does not need to be protected. His reputation does not need to be protected. As a matter of fact, he wants to be glorified in the world. But so often we Christians, we never put him in a position where he can be. We never put him in a position where he can be highly exalted and seen for the glorious God that he is. Because we are, I believe that we've become too risk averse. And somewhere inside of us, there's been an ungodly voice that has said that we need to protect our image and we need to protect God's image. I want to talk about what faith looks like. And we're going to look at, uh, at Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. I just want you guys to... I don't know, just try to like, let this sort of seep into your, your heart, let it seep into um, your thinking. And I want it to sort of shape what life should and could be like for us. So Hebrews 11, we're going to skip a bit, but um, it says this, now faith, this is verse one. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Verse six, and without faith, It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And I believe that that earnest seeking is earnest seeking in real time. It's living a life where we need God in the moment. That's earnestly seeking God, right? He comes uh, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who are earnestly seeking. Verse 7, by faith, Noah when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And by faith, Abraham, when called to a place that he would later receive as in, as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And by faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. Faith church is having a confidence in what we do not yet have, what we do not yet see, what is unseen. Faith is confidence in God, confidence that he is true, confidence that he will show up in that moment. And so I wanted to, um, I was just sort of thinking about what, what might this look like in our lives? And I want to talk about just three areas. And I, I just want to encourage you to sort of try to, try to like let this apply to whatever your context is, whether you're a student, whether you're retired, whether you're, you know, I don't know what your life exactly looks like, but just try to uh, apply this to your context. But I want to just give you three examples or three ways where we might see faith in God increase and see power of God poured out into our lives if we're willing to walk in this a bit. So I want to talk about the area of healing for a moment. What if we said to ourselves, I am going to step out in faith and I'm going to pray for that person that is in my workplace. I'm going to pray for that neighbor. I'm going to pray for that person in the grocery store. And I'm going to pray in such a way that both they and I will know that either God showed up in the moment or God did not show up right now. What if we went beyond just not saying anything to the sick person? What if we went beyond even sort of saying, hey, I'll keep you in prayer. Hope everything turns out. What if instead we declared the true character of God. And we told this person that we worship a God who heals, a God who is powerful, a God who is real. And I would like to pray for you right now in this moment. What could happen if we did that together, church? I want to talk about money for a second. What if, what if we decided to put our trust in God fully instead of in our finances? What if we said to God, God, this is scary. 
It's scary to trust you with all my finances, but I'm going to obey and I'm going to need you to take care of me because I'm putting all of my security into your hands. What if we went beyond sort of uh, tithing or being generous just when we felt like our bank account hit a, a place that was comfortable and we said, I'm just going to, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to put all of my chips on the table for you, God. Would God back up his promises to us? What about in the area of evangelism? What if we decided that we were going to share our faith with that person again at school or in our neighborhood, a friend or in our workplace, and we weren't going to, we weren't going to pull punches on it. We were going to share the full story of Jesus. We were going to share how Jesus completely changed our life. What if instead of just, you know, sort of like praying for them silently that they would come to faith, what if we said, I'm going to invite this person to church. And you know what? If the worship freaks them out, if the hand waving is weird to them, if the preacher is too fill in the blank, don't do that out loud, but whatever that is, uh, I'm going to bring them. And God, you're going to have to change their heart. I'm going to bring them and you're going to have to change their life. I'm going to just get them in the front door. And God, you, we're going to have to pour yourself out. You're going to have to be faithful to it. What might God do in those moments? What might God do if we said, I'm tired of running on batteries. I'm going for the high voltage God. I'm going for the real thing here. I um, I was talking with a person this week who was miraculously healed, miraculously healed of an addictive behavior through no effort of their own whatsoever. And the story would amaze you. It would absolutely amaze you. God is, is powerful. He can do it. And so I want to tell you guys about how this works a little bit. Okay. And I believe church that the only way to learn, like, you know how sermons teach you're not going to learn anything if you don't do anything. No learning will have taken place if it does not impact something that you do. That is the only way that you can say that you learned anything here. It's to step out. And, uh, of course, this is the way it always works with him. But I was writing this sermon uh, it, at, uh, at Panera uh, during the course of the week. I think it was on Wednesday. I'm sitting there writing, writing, writing about, you know, stepping out in faith and healing and all that stuff. I went to refill my coffee at the urn, and there is a woman standing there, no joke, she had jeans on, and then a bandage, like the old school bandage, wrapped around her knee. It was so cliche, right? And, of course, God's like... You're going to walk the walk or you're just going to write it? And so I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And so at the coffee urn, I asked this woman if I could pray for her. Hey, I said, hey, uh, I, I, I see that your knee's messed up. How's it going? She said, oh, it really hurts. And I said, well, could I, could I pray for you right now? But actually, um, what I actually said is sort of important. And here's what I said. I said, I'm a pastor and I am trying to grow in my, uh, my prayer life. And I want to pray for you to be healed. And the moment that I said, I'm a pastor to her, I actually had a check in my spirit. And I realized that God was actually calling me to not tell people all the time that I'm a pastor because it sort of makes it safe to do that type of a thing. And he was showing me that in that moment, when I say I'm a pastor, can I pray for you? God received a little bit less glory. It became a little bit more about me. And so I learned something there. And in the moment, I prayed for her. And I actually don't know uh, if she got healed. Her, she was English was definitely her second language. But at least I, I stepped out in faith and I did pray for her, right? But that's how God works. There is no way to grow in this unless we do something with it. And so as I wrap up, 
what I want to do is I want to talk about faith and fear. I want to talk about faith and fear a bit. And that's, I think this will help you. And here's the thing about faith and fear. We think that faith and fear are like these two things that battle against each other. They fight against each other in every moment. So the woman is sitting there or standing there with her bandaged leg, and I've got faith on one hand, like, okay, God's calling me to pray for her, and he's a, he's a miraculous God. He can heal her. That's, that's over here. And then there's fear of looking weird, of being rejected, of just like praying in the middle of Panera, all of that stuff, right? And I've always thought, well, whoever wins, that's what we'll do, right? Either faith wins, and we step into it, and we do this thing, or fear wins, and we shy away, and we walk away, and that's over. That is actually wrong thinking. I don't think that when we have the, that the absence of fear is faith and vice versa, because here's the deal. Fear, church, is often the first step of faith. Fear is the first it's the first step. It's the first phase of faith. In other words, if you, in your walk with God, if you ever feel a sense of fear because God is leading you to step out in faith to do something for his glory or to do something for a person, when you feel that moment of fear, you just got closer to God. When you feel that moment of fear, all of a sudden, I want you to realize that this is the first phase, the first step of faith because when you're doing that, when you're feeling that moment, God, you are on the cusp. You are on the brink of of God's kingdom coming. You are on the brink of a supernatural moment. And so I want to reframe fear for you. And I want you to put it in the context of, if I feel fear about something that's about to happen, that I feel God is calling me to, I am right in the middle of a God moment. I am in the beginning phase of just experiencing the kingdom of God coming in a really, really powerful way. But, uh, Moving through fear, it will bring us to a new place of faith, but not before. In other words, here's how it works, you guys. Your faith won't increase until after the fact. You will have to step into that moment in that place of fear. You will have to pray for that person. You will have to give that money. You'll have to share your faith or whatever it is. And right up through that moment, you will feel that fear. And that's okay. But once you've stepped into it, once you've stepped through, once you've prayed the prayer or loved on the person or shared your faith or whatever it is, after that moment, you will experience a breakthrough of faith in your life. You will experience a new level of confidence in God and you will learn something in the way that I did. You'll learn something about God. You'll learn something about yourself and you'll be closer to the kingdom. And so I want you to understand that you will feel fear and you should celebrate that moment because it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's ready to break out. And if you are gutsy enough and godly enough to walk through it, you will see faith increase in your life and you will see God's kingdom come. And it's my prayer. It's my hope, church. That we wouldn't just do some sort of a crazy, gutsy thing one time this week. I just want to, I want to invite us to make this our life. And I just wondered, like thinking about like this area of praying for sick people. A year is how many days? How many days are in a year? 365. Okay, good. We're on the same page. What if every single one of us prayed for 100 people to be healed this year. What would happen if in this room, let's say there's a hundred of us. What if a thousand times this church prayed for the sick to be healed? Would God rise up to honor our heart 
Would God meet us in this? Could God receive glory through you? What if, what if we shared our faith, each of us, with 10 people? Not just once, but if we poured our lives into people that desperately needed God. And we did it every day. What if we, we just walked in this life? Can you see God breaking out? Can you see the kingdom of God coming in such a powerful way? Are you with me, guys? All right. Um, I'm just going to wrap us up. Why don't we just stand up? We're going to pray here together. I, I have this sense, church, that, um, that there can be like, there are some defining moments in life. And I believe that there was a pre-Mount Carmel Elijah. And there was a post-Mount Carmel Elijah. And believe me, if you read the story, he was not perfect after Mount Carmel. But I believe that when we step into faith and when we say, God, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it here. There is a pre you and a post you when you discover the glory of God, when you discover how amazing he is. And when you discover what God can do through your life, you will become a different person after that. And every single time we do it, we will grow. And so we may not have a Mount Carmel experience, but we'll have a thousand littler experiences that will each change us, will each form us, will each be a conduit of God's kingdom. And my hope, my prayer, and I know God's heart, is that he would have a church and he would have a person in you that would say, I'm going to step into it. I'm going to put God on the line. I will test God and I will ask that he will show up for his own glory. That he will show up for the, the life of this person standing in front of me. And I will lay my reputation on the line for him. That's what he's asking for. He's asking for any one of you that would be willing to lay your rep on the line for him. I believe God will back it up. Lord Jesus, I... Um, I marvel at your ways. Lord, we marvel at your power. We marvel at your goodness, Lord. We marvel at uh, your eminence, that you are here with us. Lord, we are so amazed that the work that you've called us to do is not some sort of horrible worship like, like the, the, the worshipers of Baal and Asherah, but that worship to you is bringing life into the world. That worship to you is bringing justice and mercy and care and compassion all around us. And honestly, Lord, we recognize and we thank you that the bar is not low. The bar is high. That there is a mighty and fearful calling on each one of our lives. That we can't be a good Christian and do nothing. That we can't be like Jesus and just do whatever it is that we would have done. That, that our lives have to change. That we have to walk in faith. And I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you know, there's this mantle thing between Elijah and Elisha. And I pray that you would give us Elijah's mantle, that you would give us Noah's mantle, that you would give us Abraham's mantle, that we would step out in faith before we see the thing happen. But I also pray, Lord Jesus, that we would begin to see your kingdom come in ways that we never have before. 
I pray that we would begin to see the sick healed. I pray that we would begin to see our friends who have messed up lives come to newness of life. Lord, mature us, grow us up, make us more like Jesus.